0: Hello and welcome to another Spy Hard Spy Master interview. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this week, in celebration of covering the second Charlie's Angels film, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, we are kicking it into Overdrive to give you a second episode. And this time we are joined by the writer of both the first film and this film, John August. Cam, tell him a little bit about John August.
1: Yeah, John August is a very prominent um, writer in Hollywood right now. Um, in addition to the Charlie's Angels films, he worked with Tim Burton on several films that we'll talk about in the interview, um, including Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and uh, Frank and Weenie. He's also, in recent years, um, been behind the Aladdin remake. He wrote on that film starring Will Smith, and that was a massive hit. Um, he talks about some of the projects he's got coming up in the interview as well that sound like they have the potential to have real blockbuster appeal as well. So really interesting character um, in the current world of Hollywood screenwriting.
0: And yeah, let's not forget, he's uh, he's been nominated for a BAFTA. He also has his own podcast, a Script Notes podcast. Um, so yeah, it was a really fascinating chat with John, and we will throw you over to it right now. Cam, roll that clip. And we are joined today by the writer of this week's film, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, along with Charlie's Angels, Titan AE, Big Fish, Frank and Weenie, most recently Disney's Aladdin remake as well, none other than John August. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on, John. Appreciate your time. Of course. Um, So when we have people on, we always try and get a brief idea of how they got to the job that they're doing so the first question i have for you is how did you
2: get into writing in the first place i'd always been a writer so i started off you know in high school editing my high school newspaper i went to school for journalism and um thought i would focus in advertising and i was about halfway through that degree and realized i really didn't want to sell kibbles and bits for a living um but as while i was in college i found out there was such a thing as screenwriting that movies were actually written and uh this was pre internet, so it was hard to sort of find scripts for things, but I was like, you know what? I bet I could go to school for this. So I applied to USC for film school, uh, came out here to Los Angeles and stayed here ever since. So I wrote my wrote my first script uh, while I was in film school. That never got made, but eventually I wrote Go, and that was my first produced movie.
1: We actually covered um The Born Identity, which was directed oh, yeah. by Doug Lyman. I, I, just... I knew the I knew that before it was a movie, yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious what the experience was like working with Doug Lyman on your first film.
2: It was great and chaotic. Um, so one of the the great things about Doug is that he always just wants to give like 150%. Um, but the challenge is that he's only one person, so just a lot of stuff has to get done. And so on go, probably the maybe the third or fourth day of shooting, we were already like two weeks behind. And so hmm. I ended up taking over second unit directing. And I would just pick up the pieces that we missed sort of along the way. And it was just a great education in sort of how movies get made. I got to help out a lot in editorial. I was there for every every bit of it. So it was a a great experience and exhausting experience, but exactly the kind of experience you want when you're in your 20s and you're making your first movie. (laughs) It's a terrific movie. People should really check that one out if they haven't seen it. Yeah, but, and Born Identity was, is it... I think it's such a terrific movie and had a lot of the same kinds of issues in that it was like, Mm -hmm. it was going into production without really necessarily a clear plan for how stuff was going to work. I remember reading an early script and being so excited for Doug because I thought he could do a great job. But I also felt like whoever had to manage that production was going to have just such a chore ahead of them because Doug is always just racing ahead. And it sounds like that's what happened on Born Identity.
0: Right. It's a it's a hell of a trial by fire, though. It's your oh, first yeah. big big screen uh, adaptation of your writing, and also your second unit directing at the same time. That's a that's a, that's a welcome party to Hollywood, I would say. It certainly was. Um, you you sort of answered one of my my second question, but I, maybe I'll just go back a little bit then. So, when you f- figured out the screenwriting was something you would like to do, did you sort of look at anyone else, any other screenwriters, take examples from? Is anyone you look up to in that realm? You
2: know, one of the, the great things about USC is they had a, a big script library, and so again, this is pre-internet, so it was like you actually had printed scripts that you would have to check out of the library and read and, and take back in. But I remember reading like David Koepp's great scripts, who um, he did, he did *Jurassic Park* and a lot of other great mm-hmm. classic movies. Uh, reading James Cameron's scriptment and his you know actual script for *Aliens*, and looking sort of like what that what those amazing movies look like on the page, and that was really an inspiration for me in terms of thinking about how I could write action, how I could really capture the feeling of being in the theater watching these movies, but just on the page. Um, so for screenwriters of my generation, um, certainly James Cameron's writing was you know, sort of the thing we, we reached for a lot. Even you, you look at sort of like um, Point Break is another great example of like really great action writing on the page.
1: Right. And now, speaking of action, um, we'll jump over to Charlie's Angels, which we covered fairly recently on the podcast, the first one. um, From the research I've done, it sounds like this production was um a little rough in terms of the writing phase. At what point did you get
2: involved and what was sort of the production looking like at that point? So the first Charlie's Angels was actually, uh, it was, a, again, a really chaotic experience, but also a really good experience, um, but just sort of a challenge day by day. So um, with the first Charlie's Angels, there had been a script, um, Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe had done a script for Charlie's Angels. And that opening set piece, which is the stuff that's on the plane, that comes directly from their script. And so that that, that idea of there's a heist on a plane and getting off the plane um, before the plane blows up, that all came from their script. But the rest of their script went in a very different direction. And it didn't feel like kind of the Charlie's Angels that the rest of us wanted to make. The rest of us being really Drew Barrymore, uh, and then sort of Columbia Pictures overall, Amy Pascal was running Columbia Pictures. So I got involved because Go uh, had been shot at that point. It hadn't come out, but people liked the script a lot. And so I had a meeting with Drew and Amy Pascal and Nancy Javonen um, over at Amy's office. And it was just me and Drew on a couch talking about what Charlie's Angel should feel like. And we just really vibed and bonded over the spirit of being incredibly proud of these three girls who were incredibly great at their jobs, but just giant dorks off their jobs. Hmm. We, We wanted them to be both badasses and really sort of soft, cuddly dorks at the same time. And so really trying to find that balance between, you know, how can they be incredibly professional, but also very relatable. And that's very much Drew's energy. And that's really what we focused on first was what the movie would feel like. And then we had to work our way back into what would the plot of the movie be? So uh,
0: it's interesting um, that connection with Drew Barrymore was there straight from the, the beginning because that's something we spoke about was it felt like a lot of it was her film. She was very passionate mm-hmm. about it from what we, we'd we read. So it's nice to know that she was there with you as well. Absolutely. Um,
2: she was pro- producing the movie and you know she was really the driving force behind it. I mean, Cameron came on very shortly thereafter, um, but it was really kind of their friendship and their, their dynamic that's what we wanted to try to portray and, make, and expanding it out to the third angel, but really centering on them. and find the balance between the plot and then their, the character's personal lives. Did you have any experience with the original Charlie's Angels show? Oh, I, I had huge affection for the original. Uh, and we want to make sure that we are t- setting our movie in the same universe as the original Charlie's Angels so that it felt like this was a continuation of the agency which had gone on all the way from the start leading up to now. And even in those initial discussions, we talked about like, oh, and there probably was an evil angel in the 80s Uh, who who would be like Demi Moore in the sequel. Like Mm -hmm. quite early on, we had that that, that idea, like, no, there's an ongoing history here that would still be the same voice on the speakerphone box, that there was a continuity we wanted to have with the original Angels.
1: Now, I'm really curious about establishing the tone of these movies because they really get really crazy, both of them. And um, you are also, of course, trying to get across a spy plot that's at least logical to an audience watching it how do you go about kind of finding the balance between these kind of really um, fun kind of colorful vignettes and an overall spy plot?
2: Yeah. So that is the real challenge is we have every scene in the Charlie Daniels movies has to do like three things. It can't just be like the one thing that moves the plot forward. It has to be moving the plot forward and then either moving Natalie or Alice's or Dylan's storyline forward or a Bosley subplot forward. It has to be doing a lot. In the first movie, there's an example when, we're in this sort of the big fight at the end of the castle. And now that gets a phone call from Pete and has to like take this call from Pete while she's like fighting these other um, bad guys, that's sort of the spirit we were going for. It's like you're always trying to juggle your personal life and the A plot at the same time. And they're both kind of equally important. Um, so with the first movie, we knew pretty early on that we wanted to have the red herring where the, the guy they end up saving ends up becoming the villain of the story. And so like, that was built in pretty early on. But as a screenwriter, it's actually one of the most difficult jobs is trying to figure out how each scene can be, you know, moving forward a bunch of different storylines at the same time. It's not how most movies work.
1: Right. That's really interesting. And I mean, I kind of want to just also maybe a smaller question, but Crispin Glover is so memorable in this movie as the villain. And I had heard that originally there was dialogue for that character that was later
2: removed because I think Crispin Glover wanted to play it silent. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. So I don't, I'd have to go back to very original scripts to see whether I ever gave the thin man lines but he's always supposed to be this this sort of creepy, mysterious guy who just, this assassin who sort of shows up and is a foil for these characters but is not like the primary villain. And so I think the other references we had for it was Jaws from the James Bond movies um, and that he's menacing but also in his silence is really menacing. So right. I don't know if we ever had gave him any lines. But once we cast Crispin, and he was just terrific at you know in that part, it was just very natural.
0: I suppose pivoting off of that question, um, obviously this film has Bill Murray, mm-hmm. and and Bill Murray is known for a bit of improv from time to mm-hmm. time. So one of my questions was how much of what you wrote when you w- were brought in ended up on the screen, and what were any bits that were potentially changed that you you've noted since watching it.
2: Well, an important thing to know about sort of the progress from, like, I wrote a script until the movie got into in production. And then while it was in production is, um, I, I wrote a step through like the initial table read, which is sort the of first time all the actors are around a table reading together. I don't think Bill was in that one, but sort of almost everybody else was around that table read. And it went well, but there's still stuff that we to be worked on. Um, I did like, probably one more pass after that. And then I was uh, a very busy writer, but also a relatively new writer. And the decision was made by producers and studio to go to what became a succession of like really well-established high-paid writers sort of on a one-week basis to sort of work through some, some issues and sort of the scenes that were shooting next. And so to their credit, all the writers who worked on the movie during this gap had a sense of sort of what the tone was and what things should feel like. And so for as many different, you know, uh typewriters as the script went through it still felt pretty true to the spirit of things uh but i it makes it very hard for me to say like what was improvised versus what was you know some other writer who came in for a week's work along the way so i i don't know how much of the actual bill murray stuff was bill murray improvising and bill murray coming up with things versus that was the person who was writing the movie that week
0: I was going to say that's um. I mean, it must be quite tough for any any person of any creator of any type to have people go in and start changing bits and adding and subtracting from what you're doing. Is that something you? Is that a general thing that scriptwriters have to deal with throughout Hollywood? Is that for most of your work you've dealt with this?
2: You know, at times I've been that writer who's come in to do some work on something that's, that's about to shoot or that is shooting, and it is it's can be challenging, It can be frustrating because you're trying to both you know do what's best for the movie, you know, creatively but also what the people who are shooting the movie need to have happen. And sometimes it's for budget, sometimes it's for locations, sometimes it's because you have a specific actor who has very specific ideas and basically only do those ideas. So it can be really challenging. So to their credit, the the other writers I think really did a, a very solid job. But by the time I sort of came became available again and sort of got back on the movie, there was a lot to sort through and there were a lot of different ways the movie sort of headed off to, into and I ended up sort of getting involved in the editing process to sort of help, you know, steer the the movie back into the shape that it kind of wanted to be. And then we did some reshoots, which is very natural to sort of get us get certain certain plot points to make more sense, to sort of connect some dots that we're not connecting especially well.
1: I'm really curious because we, when we talk about this movie, so much of it is filtered through uh, what Drew Barrymore as a producer wanted to do. This was also the first film, a
2: major film for McGee. I'm curious oh, yeah. what sort of ideas he was bringing to the table. McGee really brought a spirit, and you know, when we were putting together the director's list, McGee was high on on my list, and this was just based on the videos he'd done, like the Sugar Ray videos, and just sort of um, the look and the feel of those things felt so specifically Southern California, so. Poppy so fun um and then you meet with him and it's his his um sense of energy is just infectious and so he was really a, a great choice for this but it was a big movie for him to be tackling right at the start with a lot of big stars and personalities and a lot of demands sort of placed upon it but uh you know he had the right spirit and drive for it and you know together with sort of Drew and Cameron and Lucy Liu. There was, there was a feel there that was unique and new.
1: Right.
2: So it's one of my last questions about the first
0: film would be, um, is there any, looking back on it now, 20 years or so since, any, any challenges you overcome, overcame, jump out to you? Any, any big lessons learned from doing that film?
2: Well, actually I, I would say like, right as we finished up that movie and you know, it, it was clear that it was gonna be a, a hit uh, and we had to start talking about the sequel, one of the things, one of the very first things I did was put together a list of like, here's let's, here's what we should not do in the sequel. Like basically a list of a checklist of like, here are all the traps that sequels fall into. Let's not fall into those traps, and instead let, let's aim to be better um, than a lot of sequels are. And I really wanted to look at Charlie's Angels as being like the second Charlie's Angels being like the second episode of a really great TV series that every episode takes like four years to film and cost a hundred billion dollars um and not just like oh my god we're we're doing the same thing again and to really sort of step up and elevate and so so i had so many specific ideas It was probably like a 15 point checklist uh which is very specific in terms of like you know dancing is great but let's not have the girls dancing all the time like let's try fun sensuality but like not going crazy with the sexiness and i would had big g and the angels and Sony, like, basically all signed this contract, say, like, this pledge, or, like, let's not do these terrible things. And that became kind of the, um, what we actually did in the sequel, um, which is why the sequel is, is really frustrating to me. So I'm delighted to talk about the sequel, but I think um, there are a lot of lessons we took from the first movie and that ignored as we tried to make the second movie.
1: So um, did you stick around for the production through the entire sequel? Because I know the Wiberleys also wrote on this film. How did that work?
2: Yeah, and and uh, other writers were in there as well who, who don't, aren't credited. So mm-hmm. here's the the short version of it. Um, and this is really colored by sort of my memory of things, but and I could probably look through the folder and see like what drafts I have. So the initial pitch I had for Charlie's Angels was a completely different thing, which was a road trip movie where the Angels have to carry this device from. Uh, New York City to Los Angeles. and It becomes like a a road trip, uh, heist adventure kind of movie. And it could have been really fun, but it just wasn't what Sony wanted to do. So that was a pitch, but I never wrote anything for it. Um, The movie I ended up writing was, uh, the first movie I ended up writing was called Charlie's Angels Forever. And it had some of the same things. It had that that idea of... um, a list that they had to protect and sort of these witnesses they had to protect Um, and had some big set pieces. There's a big set piece in Las Vegas. Uh, You know, the angels are sliding down the outside of Luxor Pyramid. Natalie ends up uh, getting into a a top gun fight in the Grand Canyon. There's some really big stakes, set pieces. It was really fun. uh, And it was not what I think McG most wanted to do. And so at that point, a different writer came in and did a different draft. And then at some point, the Wibberleys came in and did really kind of a third draft. And it was in that third draft, they went back and brought in Madison Lee, who, was, who we always pitched as being like the evil angel. Um, I think the Wibberleys' draft and this in between writers draft, everything basically got smushed together. And so what you see as Charlie's Angels 2 is really Charlie's Angels 2 and 3 kind of shoved together as one movie. And that's why there's kind of way too much plot trying to happen in there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, because I'd read that the Madison Lee character was an idea maybe tabled for a third film. Is that accurate?
2: That's accurate. And so yeah. um initially we pitched at doing it for in this one and decided not to do it. And then she came back into this one. And so uh it was it was tough and frustrating. I I had a, I remember having a really great meeting on my birthday with Demi Moore and McGee when it was decided like, okay, she's gonna be in this or she's gonna be part of it. And she was great. I think she is absolutely ideal casting as that evil angel. I just felt like there was too much movie that she was trying to, they were trying to do too much in that movie. And I thought the script wise, it suffered for like having just too many things attempted to be happening at once. Whereas the first movie, you know, as busy as the angels were with their subplots, um, it did have a, a pretty clear trajectory. In the second movie, I think sometimes you pause it and you wonder what's actually happening now. And that's, I think, because of so much stuff getting jammed at once.
0: Well, one of the questions I had, if we're moving on to uh, Charlie's Angel Full Throttle at this point, is a lot of people were quite hesitant to do sequels or mm-hmm. uh, franchises and that sort of thing. What made you want to come back for round two?
2: You know, in making the first movie, there was a, a term we ended up talking about, you know, in phone calls and in meetings. It was called fighting the monster, and every day on Charlie's Angels, like there was somebody was the monster, and some days it was McTi, some days it was Drew, some days it was the studio, some days it was me. But every day there was a, a monster, and everyone had to sort of get up, sort of gang up together, and like fight, defeat the monster, and then you could sort of get on to the next thing. Um, and yet, as tough as it all was, we were so proud of the first movie, how it was received, and mostly how it felt that it was like a movie that like teen girls absolutely loved but like boys dug as well that whole families could go see I, just, I was just really proud of sort of what we've been able to accomplish in part because we were underdogs going into it there was always so much speculation of like oh this is gonna be a dumb tv knockoff it's you know there's it's so pointless to try to make this movie and the fact that it turned out well and did really well was such vindication I think going into the second movie uh, there were high expectations and everyone had a different idea of sort of what made the first movie successful. And so there was this desire to sort of let's crank up all those knobs, you know, to 13. And, uh, and that was really challenging.
1: Now, before the, um, you know, the box office for the second one was a little lower than the first, and Mm -hmm. it seems like kind of the brakes got put on, you know, a third film, but it seems like there was excitement about doing a second, you know, towards the end of the first Mm -hmm. was any of that energy existing towards the end of the second one for a potential third.
2: I don't recall there being great enthusiasm about doing a third one. I think because it had been, again, a rough time doing it. I mean, the Angels got along spectacularly, but I think the uh, the fact that it didn't do as well as the first one, and it, just, it was just such a slog for everyone. There wasn't, I think, a lot of enthusiasm about it. But as recently as like 2017, I, I would have talks with, uh, Drew Barrymore and Nancy DeVone about like okay, well, what would we do for Charlie's Angels now? So hmm. before you know the most recent Charlie's Angels reboot, there, there was, we were still having some talk about like what would a Charlie's Angels look like because there was something compelling about these women and sort of seeing what could happen next with them.
0: Well, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what would you do?
2: You know, we didn't get we didn't get that far into it, and it was just really a question of sort of sort of spitballing kind of what things what what would things feel like? And sort of like, you know, where would Dylan be now? Where would Natalie be now? What would Alex be up to now? And sort of, we don't think of angels having kids. We don't think of, you know, what the life is like after you become, after you've stopped being this secret badass. Um, so I think there would definitely be interesting territory to mine. I just felt like ultimately, it was unlikely we were going to get Sony to say yes to it, particularly the, the current you know, incarnation of Sony to say yes to that kind of movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm curious, you know, what are some of your favorite bits? You know, maybe in the second one, you say it was a bit of yeah. a frustrating movie. But what are some of the moments that, you know, if you rewatch it or come across it on TV that you go, you know what, I'm really proud with that moment?
2: You know, I hadn't watched Charles Angel's since it had come out until about a year ago. And I decided like, you know what, I'm going to have two stiff drinks and watch this movie, which I've sort of deliberately not watched. And I'll say that I liked it more than I thought I was going to like it. Um, and with all its imperfections, there are things I definitely didn't appreciate about it. Um, trying to get into the Thin Man's backstory is so much fun. And um, we would had very... Preliminary conversations with Crispin at one point about doing like a Thin Man movie and like maybe even doing it as a silent film, uh, which could have been cool. Uh, and so it was fun to try to. It was fun to think about what that would be like. um I think Justin Thoreau is great in it, and I think if if we could, if we didn't have to have three villains in in the story, if it hadn't sort sort of done the the Batman problem too many villains, I think either Justin, you're gonna pick maybe two. are gonna have to be more for sure either Justin Thoreau or Robert Patrick, but there was, or the Thin Man, like there was too many villains in the story, but um, it was fun to have, it was fun to see Justin Thoreau's character. I liked that he had Dylan backstory. I liked there was some, a voice from the past coming in here. One of the real challenges with Charlie's Angels is in that first movie, um, I could do things that you couldn't do in the TV series. In, that, in the TV series, you're never going to blow up the Townsend Agency. You're never going to have Charlie's life be threatened. Um, and so once you've done that, you have to think about, okay, well, how, now that we've, sort of broken that seal what are the next things and so it probably would be getting back to um, who the angels were before they they joined the academy or before Charlie recruited them so having Angel decided to leave that is meaningful I think my frustration is that so much is happening so quickly in that movie Dylan's decision to leave doesn't really have any resonance
0: I suppose backing off of Cam's question and looking at maybe at both films as a collective piece of work now of those two films, what is the
2: favorite moment that you are responsible for? Favorite moment that I'm responsible in the two movies? Um, I really love the, honestly, the, the beach ending. So after mm. they've saved Charlie's life and the girls are on the beach with Bosley and it's you need that happy moment where everything's okay and Dylan turns and sees Charlie walking by and like, you know I think in the script is decided, it's listed as like, we don't see what she sees but she knows it has to be him. Um, That sense of, I always described Charles Angels as like these three princesses who work for their uh, father, the king, except that the king is also sort of God. Like they they have to sort of just take it on faith that he exists. Um, That last moment for me works really well. And it's such an unusual moment in an action film. And so I was just really proud of how that translated to the screen.
1: I'm really curious. So when you're writing your action scenes in your scripts, do you do them fairly detailed or do you keep them a little bit lighter and let the director kind of fill in the, uh, the beads?
2: Yeah. So if people want to read the scripts, they're both up on my, my website. So just on August.com in and the library there, you can download the scripts and take a look at them. Uh, yeah, they're pretty detailed. Like it really, I think it's the job of a screenwriter to give you the sense of what it's going to feel like to be sitting in that theater, looking at watching that movie and feeling that movie On screen, so if it's something that you would experience in the theater, it's the screenwriter's job to get it onto the page. And so that doesn't mean every every punch and every blow, but if there's a if there's a feeling you're going for, you got to get that on the page. My last
0: Charlie's Angels related question is uh, again more of a broader question. Now we've had the the 2019 continuation with Mm -hmm. new angels in the same universe. Um, where would you like to see the franchise go? Would you like to see the new actresses come back for a second round or a different spin on it?
2: You know, I, I, I liked a lot of stuff they were trying to do in, in the most recent Charlie's Angels. And uh, no spoilers, I felt like they, they tried to have the sort of the double reversal, which didn't quite work for me, but I, I liked where they were going. I liked that you know, they um, took the relationship between the Angels as an important part of it. I don't know that you're going to make more with that particular group But I do think there's an overall um, need to have uh, action films that aren't just explosions and boys doing things. And so I think trying to find a way to keep Charlie's Angels relevant to the next group is really important. One thing that was so interesting to me when we did our first test screening of the first movie is one of the questions on the survey afterwards was, were you aware of the TV series, Charlie's angels? And like 70% of the audience had no idea what Charlie's angels was. And so here we'd spent, you know, tens of billions of dollars to make this movie based on this classic title and realized like, Oh, you know what? We have to tell people what Charlie's angels are because it's, it's not a meaningful um, brand name for, you know, teenagers who are our prime audience. So it's uh, so I think going forward, people's most, of people's familiarity with charlie's angels is going to be probably the drew barrymore uh cameron diaz version of charlie's angels and i think something like that is what you're gonna to have to be building off of next i don't think you can just go back to the original series or just the concept of three women who work for uh this paternalistic figure
1: now jumping off of um, charlie's angels i would be remiss to not kind of dive into your tim burton work i am a huge <laughs> tim burton fan and I'm curious, you know, you adapted Daniel Wallace's um, novel to make Big Fish, a terrific movie out on 4K Blu-ray. That's a blind buy for anyone out there. But um, I'm curious, at what point Tim Burton got involved? Like, was this a script or a book, you know, that you were hired to adapt and Tim Burton got involved down the road? Or how did that collaboration kick off?
2: It actually overlaps a lot with Charlie's Angels. So I had done some work on a movie at Sony and... And so then I went in afterwards and said, like, oh, hey, uh, I really, and I had done Go for Sony. And so I said, there's this book I really want to adapt. Would you get the rights for me? And that book is Big Fish. And they said, great, sure, fantastic. Oh, hey, but first, before you do that, would you meet with Drew Barrymore about Charlie's Angels? And so I met with Drew and I ended up writing Charlie's Angels. And so it was about a year and a half later that I finally got to start working on the adaptation of Big Fish. I wrote the script for it. And they're like, wow, this is a really great script. This is a very expensive, tiny movie. We will never make this movie. Hmm. And so I asked, hey, could I just, what if I were to get some producers on it, some producers who could help you sort of see the vision of this? And so I went to Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen, who had just gotten the Oscar for American Beauty, which was a small movie that won the Oscar and made it $100 billion. And so with them, I got permission to sort of do a second draft. And off that second draft, we got Spielberg signed on to direct it. And so I worked with him for about a year he was great. He was fantastic, but also super busy. And it became clear he probably wasn't going to find a spot in his schedule to direct it. So he fell off and we said, okay, we need another giant director or else Sony's going to say no. And so we went to Tim Burton. He said yes. And so Tim said yes. And very quickly we moved into production. So I didn't really work with Tim that much on Big Fish. I was there for pre-production. I was there and did some little scene works, but and I liked Tim, but we didn't work very closely together at on Big Fish. Um, I was really happy how the movie turned out. And he liked me enough that he brought me into Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Corpse Bride and Frank and Weenie and other projects after that. So it was a good collaboration, but it wasn't um the typical way that, you know, writers and directors come together.
1: Right. And I'm curious too, with Frank and Weenie um adapting, you know, a short film like that, like how do you look at a film like that? You know, the short is, you know, again, as a short film and find a way to blow that up to feature length. Like, what were sort of the, you know, the tricks that worked for you and maybe some of the pitfalls people could fall into
2: adapting something that short? Anytime you're adapting something, you have to look at what made this work in the small version and of the things that made this work so well in the small version, what could translate to a big feature film? And so with Frank and Winnie, everything that's in that short film is great and terrific. So you could basically say, okay, we're going to take all this stuff over, but where are the opportunities for expansion? And Tim said, listen, like, I think there's many more monsters that want to be in this movie. Hmm. Find a way to sort of have, let each of the kids sort of make their own monsters the same way that, um, our central character brings back, uh, his dog. And so then it became about kids and their pets and science overall. Um, and I was just looking for explanations for, kind of why this was happening in this weird suburban town. So the idea that this is New Holland, that it's a windmill, that we could sort of use all this Frankenstein mythology, but in this very suburban California kind of setting, um, just, it was just building it out that way and, and trying to find, uh, you know, keep the emotional core of it the same, yet build the scale and stakes. It was a, it was a, a, just a terrifically fun project to write, but I had about three weeks to do it. So it was a, it was a real rush.
1: Holy smokes. Um, and then my last Tim Burton question was actually just about Dark Shadows, mm-hmm. which you have a story credit. I'm curious, was there ever a point where you were going to be contributing to the screenplay or was it always going to be a story
2: credit? So uh, I have story credit because another writer rewrote it so significantly that the mm. script, the movie that is on that you see is not really the script that I wrote. So the script I wrote is very much, is it kind of, it's the Godfather with a vampire in it. It's a very different feel. And so it's, I, I think very true to the original Dark Shadows, but it's also and, and it's funny in its way, but it's not trying to be it's not trying to be camp. And uh so Dark Shadows is the only movie with my name on that I've never seen. I, I it just it it was a frustrating experience for me. Wow. Okay. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Oops, I'm sorry, Siri just, <laughs> just, just Siri just to chimed in here.
0: Um <clears throat> one question just um maybe to compare and contrast McGee versus uh, Tim Burton and the working with both directors,
2: what's the differences between the two? They're just really different types. And I think one of the great things about being a screenwriter is you get to work with a lot of different filmmakers and see what works for them. And so I remember when Spielberg first signed on to uh, Big Fish, I was so nervous to meet him because at this point, McG, I was actually in McGee's office when I had my phone call with Spielberg for the first time. And then I met with Spielberg and then I I visited him on set and I realized, oh wow, he's just working really hard. Like, yes, he may have great talent and skill, but also he's just working really hard. And that's the thing you don't sort of appreciate about some people who are, who seem like geniuses is that it's there's genius and there's also a lot of really hard work. And I I recognize the same thing in Tim Burton is that Tim Burton uh, is, he is quiet and he's sometimes hard to read, but he has every shot planned out in intricate detail. He has notebooks with exactly what he's going to do. He is sketching and watercoloring um, for for what stuff is going to look like. He has a plan. and He brings in very smart people to help him execute that plan. Or you compare that to Doug Lyman, who has really interesting instincts, um, but will go in nine different directions at once. And you have to sort of catch up with him. Um, so every director is different. And you're really trying to find who is the right director for this specific project. I McGee mean, she was the, absolutely the right person to uh, kick off Charlie's Angels uh, in ways that Tim Burton or Spielberg would have been really disastrous choices. Uh,
0: now, John, I'm, I'm aware of the, your time. Um, we do have a couple of quick questions for you, sure. sort of a, a speed round we do with all of our guests on the show. Great. So first question is, who is your favorite spy in cinema history?
2: It's going to come back to James Bond, which is uh, a boring answer that I'm sure a thousand people give. Um, But I remember watching on ABC television in the US, um, right before uh, school would start in September, they would always have a Bond movie on that Sunday night. I just remember watching those with my family. And these are mostly the Roger Moore ones with some Sean Connors mixed in there too. And just like that combination of proficiency and gadgets and sex was just so compelling. Uh, Well, that's a fine answer, to be fair. He's
0: one of the the biggest spies in cinema history. But um, So what would be your best Bond
2: film then, your favorite, your go-to? I I don't know if it's actually the best Bond movie, but it's the one that I have the the most affinity for and affection for, having seen it so many times, uh, was uh, From Russia Russia With Love. And just the, um, the gadgetry in it, the scale of it, I just love. Um all the evil henchmen um I, I i love i love it red grant is a force to be reckoned with <laughs> yep. um does that make Roger Moore or Sean Connery your bond i think uh i th- i'm I'm genuinely torn i and I say from Russia with love, but also the spy who loved me is is another um is is up there a lot as well um I think just from early exposure, probably Roger Moore a little bit more than Sean connery but that's just from early exposure, right? and I, I can't really compare them side by side.
0: That, that's fair. It, people struggle and continue to argue about it until this day. Yeah. So,
1: um, Well, Cam, do you have any follow-up questions? Well, I mean, we've touched on James Bond. Are there any other spy movies that really jumped out to you as favorites?
2: Um, the other spy movies, I, there's always like the, the realistic spy movies, the Tinker Tail or Soldier Spies, the bridge of spies folks but they're not sort of what I go to when I want a spy movie I want some uh, I want some espionage that that involves like stakes and jumping and stunts and uh, that's why I like the Bourne movies that's why you know one of the, the real pitches for Doug's initial take on the Bourne movies is like it's James Bond if he was actually physically capable of doing all these things and that if if you took away sort of all of his all the infrastructure behind him and just had him be one badass guy by himself uh so that's it's a good pitch i don't know that i have other ones that i'm dying to and it's honestly honestly a genre that i lean on in terms of going to pitch uh you know charlie's Angels is probably the exception for me because it's not the kind of thing that's usually in my wheelhouse
1: Right. Now, is there anything coming up you'd like to promote or any projects you're
2: working on? A couple of things. So, I have my weekly podcast called Script Notes with Craig Mason. So, we have, we just crossed episode 500. Uh, we're working on a Script Notes companion book, which should be fun. Um, what else am I up to? I have a movie in production right now at Warner's called Toto, which is the uh, story of The Wizard of Oz from Toto's point of view. So, that's mm-hmm. uh, been just tremendously fun. Alex Timbers is directing that and uh there's other projects i'm hoping to get shooting up here pretty soon it's been uh, obviously a weird year for everybody but um as we sort of start getting things back into production it's fun to think of you know stuff you know happening in front of cameras again
0: well i i suppose that wraps us up john i want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk about charlie's angels today absolutely cam's got an absolute pleasure and we're back from our turbocharged interview with john august and wow turbocharged indeed <laughs> that interview went full throttle <laughs> one of us had to make the pun um <laughs> I, I mean it was an absolute blast again talking to uh, to john he clearly is a uh, a master of his craft i would say you know he knows what he's talking about and you know the charlie's angels films are not particularly
1: deep shall we say
0: really but it's not
1: Wow. (laughs) I thought they were really commenting on the human condition.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if me and you were uh, as good looking as the angels, maybe our lives would be different and uh, Mm. we would resonate more with it. But it's nice to see how much thought went into the process of putting these films together because he clearly cares for the characters.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about his fandom regarding the original property. So often when it comes to, TV shows being adapted into movies or any real IP, you kind of question sometimes, did this writer or director really even care that much about this property or did they just kind of get tossed on to it? How did that work? But it was really refreshing to hear him talk about how much the show meant to him and the elements he wanted to bring to this film. And um, or to both films, I should say, but also that he had a very different pitch for the second film. And we had a lot of issues with the second entry, Full Throttle. And um I would love to um, you know, now delve into the actual full story as to what that second film would have been.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to I mean, taking it back to the first film. When you were telling me about it on the episode, you were saying about how involved Drew Barrymore was with the production and, and obviously McGee was as well. But it, it's nice to know that there was this like meeting of the minds with Drew, McGee, and John to really hone this story and to, to figure it out. And I think that's You know why the first film works so well. It knows what it's doing. It knows its universe and it plays within it. Um, And then, as you mentioned, we had some issues with Full Throttle. And I think, I I called it like the the Spider-Man 3 effect. I think you referred to another film, but basically the same thing.
1: Iron Man 2, Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, you know, fill in the blank for those sequels that people didn't really dig that felt kind of bloated and just filled with too muchness. I mean, too many cooks
0: mm, as i yeah. would
1: say i think it yeah it was that and it's a shame to hear that his involvement
0: wasn't as uh involved in the second film and i think that you know we had as i said problems with it and i think a lot of it comes down to just it being a bit of a bloated story and you know i his original pitch for the film i think was a lot stronger and i would have liked to have seen that
1: yeah and i mean he Also talked about how everyone involved, whether it was Barrymore, whether it was McGee or himself, they all saw the movie very differently, which kind of spells trouble right there, that no one's on the same page as to what story they're telling. And, um, you know, when I remember the anecdotes about the first one, you know, a lot of it was that Drew Barrymore sold the film on like a scissor reel she put together, cutting together all these different influences and more of a tone piece in terms of selling what she wanted to make. And so often the second one felt like a scissor reel of ideas and influences and homages, but without a cohesive story kind of tying it all together and a clear vision. And so I can understand his frustration in that, you know, he can watch the second one, he can find things he likes in it, but it doesn't feel specific to his vision, to maybe what Drew Barrymore wanted to do. It's kind of like, you know, it's serving everyone at the same time and no one as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know it did a disservice to I think some of the other characters like as I mentioned in the episode Thin Man, mm. uh, he had uh, John had I think better ideas for what to do with Thin Man and potentially what within a third film which would have been the uh, the Demi Moore evil angel story, yeah, uh, which I again I think is a, a, a quite an interesting uh, conceit but uh, jamming into all this big big blockbuster of a film it's just a mess, mm. um, and so. Ultimately, I think it was a shame, but it was nice to hear from him about the the thought that he put into it. And it was just a shame that we never got the story that he pitched. I think there was a lot of fun in there, and I think it would have really celebrated what was great about the first film without overdoing
1: it. But I appreciated that like this sequel even came from Good Intentions. You know, He genuinely wanted to build on what he had gotten across the first time, and it just didn't work out in his favor, but... Whenever it comes to these types of movies, movies that maybe people dismiss out of hand, um, it's nice to know that there was someone involved at the creative level that genuinely believed they could make something really cool out of this.
0: And moving on from Charlie's Angels, of course, as well, you you spoke to him about his work with Tim Burton mm-hmm. on stuff like Frankenweenie and, and Dark Shadows, and that, you know that's I don't know much about those films. I haven't seen them, unfortunately. But you know, did you did you garner any insight out of that?
1: I did, and that I chose to ask questions. Um, I, we touched on Big Fish, which was a very celebrated Tim Burton movie. Um, but I wanted some details on Frank and Weenie and Dark Shadows because all of the Tim Burton films, they feel like the less covered. Uh, I don't know if people really talk about those movies necessarily as much as, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was like a massive hit. Um, there's plenty of content out there in terms of the backstory on that film. Whereas with like Dark Shadows, I was really interested in his involvement, and I'm sorry to hear it sounds very unpleasant. Um, but Frank and Weenie was also very interesting to hear him talk about adapting that um, '80s short film into a you know full length film that I think is actually really strong, really fun movie. Well, I'll have to add that to uh, my list of films to check out. He did also, you know, give us
0: a little bit of information about what he's got coming
1: up. Yeah, he said he's going to be tackling um, the Wizard of Oz universe through the point of view of Toto. And it's interesting because I feel like the Wizard of Oz universe, um, we've had the original film, which is obviously beloved um, from 1939, and then you have like Return to Oz, which is really weird and dark and kind of uh, off-putting for any children, and also the Oz the Great and Powerful film, which... Uh, had its interesting elements. It's an army of darkness sort of riff in a lot of ways. Sam Raimi is the director I really like, but did not really connect. So it feels like a very underexplored universe in cinema. So I'm kind of curious if Toto cracks that because I would have to believe that there's a lot of interest at a studio level in expanding on that Wizard of Oz IP.
0: Uh, as long as Zach Braff
1: gets to reprise his role as the uh, the monkey, I'm in. Mm, No kidding. Sold. Bring back a uh, Bruce Campbell cameo. I am on board as well.
0: But yeah, so that was our chat with with John August. It was really nice to see sort of uh, how this Charlie's Angels story came to be. We really loved the first one. We didn't love the second one so much, but we did love chatting with John. For sure. So, you know, I'm 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 glad we got the chance to pick his brain about the films. Uh I'm interested to see what happens with the next Charlie's Angels film coming up in a couple of months time. For sure.
1: Uh, but Cam, in the meantime, what have we got coming out next week? We are tackling the 1945 spy thriller, House on 92nd Street. A bit of an obscure film, but available anywhere to rent. Google Play, Apple, um, Amazon Prime probably. Uh, check out you know, your local rental services. It sounds like a really interesting movie to tackle and it would be fun if you guys watch it as well and join us on the journey. There you go. Uh, But don't forget to
0: follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.